Welcome back to the Caught Red Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking about true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. We hope everybody had a happy 4th of July. And you have all 10 fingers. Yes. Put it in reverse, Terry. We hope all your dogs didn't get too anxious. Ours are going to be drugged. Yeah, well, fireworks have been going off for the last couple of days anyway, so they're kind of getting used to it. I don't know. No? <laughs> you didn't have Mowgli in your lap. Well, last night wasn't near as bad as the previous night, that though. Is true. He did a lot better. And the fireworks were still going to like 10.30-ish, I guess. But, you know, we took a week off to kind of... Get ahead of schedule. We've got a couple trips. Yeah, try. 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 Keyword try. Try to not procrastinate as bad. We got a couple trips in August that I don't know if we're going to have to like skip that week or just have an episode planned ahead of time or what? Well, we took the equipment with us last year to Gulf Shores. Oh, yeah. We can do that again. Yeah. Yeah. We can just do that. We can talk about someone getting eaten by a shark or something. I don't know. There's a case like that out there. Oh, I'm sure there is. I don't know. But we also had a tree fall in our backyard, so we spent last Monday, instead of recording, we spent it carrying limbs from our backyard over to the oh, burn Lord. pile. That was a workout, but... Lordy, lordy, lordy. And your mom was like, I just did arm day. <laughs> But we got it all done. It was like a eight to five. Not yeah, too bad. I'm, I'm glad your parents were there to help us. And I'm glad your dad got himself a new chainsaw. Yeah, I think he had like a 14 inch and he bought a 20 inch. That 14 inch wasn't going to do the job. I don't know the differences in those inches, but I'm glad he has a new toy. True. And it wasn't really even that expensive for us well, for you to go get all that wood and everything to rebuild the fence, because if we had, if we had claimed it through our insurance, yeah, I wasn't trying to pay a thousand dollar deductible for something we no. didn't need. Plus, who knows when we would have someone come out and check it and quote us, and then getting like a company hired and just yeah, because there was so that. much damage throughout like central Arkansas. So it, who knows how long it would have took. But we had to have our dogs be able to run free in the Heaven backyard. Forbid. Oh, my gosh. Because Mowgli would have saw that hole in the fence and would have just been gone. went off. Yeah. We need to get him like a bright orange vest. Yeah, he would be easily mistaken as a wolf. Well, he looks like the color of a deer also from a distance. True. Um, but what happened was, so Sunday around like four-ish, I think, I was just sitting on the front porch watching the storm come in. That's what we like to do here in the South. Yeah, like getting ready to watch Twister or something, you know. And I see our neighbor's Great Pyrenees, Willow. She's just... Willow. She's loose. She's headed straight for the highway. I'm like, oh, no, not Willow. And so I take off running barefoot after her, and she sees There's a lot of gravel, by the way, that he's barefoot on. And she sees me, and she she rolls over onto her backside so I can pet her belly. And, of course, I'm like, come on, let's go back home. And she's just stubborn as always because, yep. first of all, she's Houdini, and she gets out 
left and right. Even though they fixed the fence, it's they, been a long the time gates since closed good. Out. I don't know how she did it this time. It has been a while. But so since she's stubborn, I pick her up and she's like 80 to 100 pounds. I don't know. She's thick. She's she don't, big girl. She doesn't miss a meal. And I take her over there, and one of the girls comes over and helps. And she's barefoot, and it's like nothing to her. That's just... I miss those days. Yeah. Invincible. And I'm, like, limping on my way back to the house. And I call Megan up, and I'm, like, telling her what happened. Out of breath, like, hey, (laughs) guess what I just did. And then... I'm like, bro, catch your breath. All of a sudden, it just gets super windy. And the wind's coming at, like, different directions than it normally does. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to hang up and go back inside. So I go back inside, and I'm looking out, like, all the windows just to see, because normally we do have, like, limbs fall. Mm-hmm. And I get to the back window, and sure enough, like, a whole damn tree is down. And at first I'm just thinking it was one of the big limbs from the tree inside of our fence line. Which, if that whole thing fell, our house would just be smushed. It's huge. But I get out there, and I walk around the big tree that fell, and sure enough, it went straight through our fence. But, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. We got lucky. It was right behind our fence. Fence line still on our property. Still ours to clean up. But it was such a healthy tree. Compared to all the dead ones that could have fell in our yard. The yeah. one that's on our side that needs to die, like officially fall over. <laughs> Hanging by a thread over there. It is literally going nowhere. I don't understand it. Because, I mean, that tree, oh, it, it smelled good, too. Mm-hmm. Like when it was all broken up and the flies Jesus were so Christ. attracted to it. Holy shit. We've never... in. We've been here going on three years, and we've never had a fly problem, never had an issue. But, like, all last week, they were, ugh, they were horrible, horrible. And so we take basically that whole damn tree over to the burn pile, and that thing was burning hot for, like, 60, 70 hours straight, I'd say. We were, like, taking intervals at night to go check on it, me and Megan. Yeah, we'd never burned anything like that before, so we would set our alarms on our on our phones for every couple hours and go out there and make Just, sure we haven't burned the whole neighborhood down. Yeah. <laughs> but it's done now. Spread the ashes. It's all dust good. Dust to dust. Yup. Well, Megan has a case for us today. You ready to do this thing? Always. I got quite a few sources, so bear with me. Wonderground.com, RomanticAsheville.com, Forest Service, USDA. Uh, I went to several different find-a-grave sites for the victims. We got the Transylvania Times, ABC News, Web Sleuths. That was a fun one to go on a downward spiral. Gainesville Times, Justice.gov, Case Law, Good Old Murderpedia, the GBI.Georgia.gov, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. I visited the charlieproject.org for a couple of the victims. Fox5Atlanta.com, The Times, Savannah Now, and then Psychology Today. You ready? That's a long list. I know it. I feel it. And I came across my case by accident 
I had just ordered myself a new pair of hiking boots, and I've been watching the weather so I could take Derby out with me. I like to take her to Woolly Hollow. It's a few minutes from our house, and she loves it, and we go often enough that I know the trails and the terrain, and I feel comfortable being out there alone. I always make sure we've got water. She's got her little bowl to drink out of, and sometimes I make her wear her cooling vest, and I always carry with me my big Murica-themed pocket knife. It's not a big trail either. I'm like a mile long, maybe. Well, there's the one main Huckleberry Trail does kind of wrap around Woolly Hollow's Lake. So that's the longest one. But I, we've never gone the too whole far. Way. Yeah, because yeah. I don't want her to get too hot or overheated. But um, that one's not like secluded either. There's a bunch of campsites out there as yeah, well. Yeah, right. And then right. the lake, which all the people swimming at it. So, Which I was just thinking maybe next week we can take our yaks out there and just kind of bobble on the water some. I do need to fix this tan line. Yeah. Anyhow, so it had me thinking about looking up weird or strange disappearances in state parks and wooded areas because there is plenty of those out there. And then seconds later, I found myself reading about a man dubbed the National Forest Killer, a.k.a. Gary Michael Hilton. Hold on to your butts. It's Sunday, October 21st, 2007, and what a beautiful day. Not a rain cloud in sight. The temperature had started off a bit chilly in the morning, but was slowly warming up to a pleasant low 70s as the afternoon approached. That's perfect hiking weather. It really is. Horseshoe, North Carolina natives John and Irene Bryant decided to drive out to the Pink Beds Trail at Pigs and National Park. I wonder if the Lawrence Herd has heard of this since they're in from North Carolina. I don't know. Shout, Shout out. out. <gasps> Shut up. Shut up. Pink Beds is one of our kind of trails. It makes a nice loop. It's about five miles long. It's a fairly popular hiking spot with a very small rise in elevation, which is perfect for this couple. John is about 80 years old and his wife, Irene, is 84. But for these two, age was just a number. They not only loved the great outdoors and adventures, it was a way of life for the two. She robbed the cradle too, didn't she? Yeah, four years, baby. They had traveled the world. They explored all over. Irene's love for the world outside stemmed far back. She had gone to graduate school for plant biology. She loved to share her knowledge of nature, informing those around her of the genus and the species of the trees and other plant life along the trails. And her love didn't stop with plant life. She was also a veterinarian. Her husband, John, had gone into law, but nature was in his blood. His father was a professor of horticulture. A great example of John's love and determination for nature was the fact that he conquered the 2,000-plus miles of the Appalachian Trail. He broke that up into different sections. He completed them over a span of several years, and you would never guess that he had arthritis in his back. Since hiking was a way of life for the two, you can believe that they went somewhere weekly to get out of the house and to do some exercising. This particular Sunday, they chose a fairly close trail. Pink Beds is about a 30-minute drive. The Bryants parked their maroon Ford Escape along Yellow Gap Road just off U.S. Route 276. 
And then nothing. Neither neighbors or any of the Bryant's four kids had heard from John or Irene. Neighbors started to see mail and the paper stacking up. The kids couldn't get in contact with their parents. As far as everyone knew, the Bryants had had no plans to go out of town or to be out of reach. Days turned to weeks and still nothing. That was when, on November 2nd, Robert Bryant decided to report his parents as missing. Like those around John and Irene, Robert knew his parents were avid outdoorsmen, but they were also still older. Yes, they could probably MacGyver their way out of a sticky situation, but what if their lack of contact was something much more sinister? Concerned, Robert began to make travel arrangements from his home in Austin, Texas, to Horseshoe, North Carolina. While he was on his way, there were search parties forming on November 6th, give or take. When he arrived himself, Robert was going to start from near his parents' home and then work his way outward from that point. That was when he spotted their Maroon Ford Escape parked. So was he just going to trails that he thought they might have went to? That's what it sounded like. Because what are the odds that he just stumbled upon that Ford Escape 30 minutes from their house? Right. Yeah. Unless maybe they had like a a journal or a book somewhere, like their favorite spots to go. Or maybe he knew they liked to go there because it was so close. Maybe. While some were searching Pigza, investigators started to dig into the Bryant's life, gathering their financials and their phone records. Here was the first sign that the Bryant's had been in trouble. Back on October 21st, there had been a 911 call placed from Irene's cell phone, but due to the weak signal, the call was dropped. And that was as far as investigators could go with that. They turned to the financials and see that on October 22nd, $300 had been taken out of a bank's ATM in Ducktown, Tennessee, using John's bank card. Ducktown is right across the border from North Carolina. With their curiosity piqued, investigators reached out to the bank and discovered the ATM had a camera. All you could tell was that the individual was a male and he was tall and he was slender, but that was enough for the police to know that it had not been John Bryant. They decided to release a still photograph, but it was still too grainy and hard for anyone to identify him. Plus, the man in the photo was wearing a hooded yellow coat, like a rain jacket, blocking most of his face. Back at the Pigza National Forest, searchers were coming through the terrain, and on November 9th, Irene's body was found. She was hidden underneath leaves and sticks. Her autopsy would later show that her cause of death was blunt force trauma, possibly caused by a hammer or a tire iron. Irene had also sustained a fracture to her left forearm and the fingers of her left hand were broken. These injuries most likely occurred as she was trying to block the attacks. And then the right arm from the elbow down was missing and the Emmy couldn't determine if it was intentional or if it had been animal activity. The elements weren't very kind to her remains, but the medical examiner was fairly certain that she had died weeks prior, closer to the date that the Bryants were last seen or heard from. After finding Irene, investigators, searchers, family, friends, all had one question. Where was John? Was he a suspect? No. No. They've Well, he was 80. I don't, I hope he wasn't a suspect. Right. There were no signs of him dead or alive in the vicinity of Irene, 
whose body was found just mere feet from the trailhead and their car. That was something else that was a bit curious. They hadn't found John, yet the car was in the same spot. So he had to be close by, right? You would think. Searchers remained hopeful, but as time went on, that dwindled. John Bryant was never found. Well, not at least in the Pigza National Forest. Almost three months passed after the discovery of Irene before a hunter on February 3rd, 2008 in the Nanatahala National Forest reported finding a skull with an apparent gunshot wound. Upon further searching of the area, more skeletal remains were found. Days later, they would be identified as John Bryant. What was puzzling about the discovery of John Bryant was the location of the Nantahala National Forest. It was a minimum of 80 miles or so from his Ford Escape. Authorities figured that the assailant had taken John hostage in order to use his bank card and then disposed of him to leave no witness. When was the bank card used again? October 22nd. And they were hiking when? October 21st. Okay. So they... You so... Th- you think he kept John alive for a day? And then was like, oh, okay, I got my money. And then dumped him? That's what they are figuring had happened. How, how close is the... Where, they, where he was found to the ATM? Oh, I didn't look that up. Let me look real quick. Okay. That was about a 20-mile distance. Huh. Good question. While the authorities in North Carolina were still searching for John Bryant, 46-year-old Cheryl Hodges Dunlap wouldn't arrive for her church duties Sunday or her shift as a nurse on Monday. There would be no way that the North Carolina police would have been informed of it either. Cheryl Dunlap was a resident of Crawfordville, Florida. She was last seen on a Saturday morning, December 1st, 2007. She was a woman who liked to keep busy and it wasn't too often she had an afternoon off. On this day, she ran errands in the town of Tallahassee. It's like us going from Greenbrier to Conway. It was about 3.30 that afternoon when a highway patrol officer noticed a white Toyota Camry pulled off on the shoulder of Highway 319 facing southbound like it was heading back towards into Crawfordville. He approached the vehicle. He saw no one and just assumed the car had some sort of trouble and the driver had walked back to town. That officer went about his business. Later, another patrolman saw the car about 6 p.m., made himself a mental note that on his way back through in a few hours, he would stop to see that Camry was still there. 11 p.m. is when he passed back through on this area of Highway 319, saw the Camry was in that same spot. He decided to get out and check things. He noticed that one of the tires was flat. Like the first officer, he assumed the driver had gotten help and would be back. He, too, went about his business. It wasn't until the next day that a deputy with the Wakala County Sheriff's Department spotted the Camry and ran the plates. The vehicle had come back to Cheryl Dunlap. And Miss Dunlap was a divorced mother of two adult sons who had a clean driving record and no warrants. With nothing suspicious flagged, he deemed the car as abandoned and tagged it. That was Sunday, 
the day that Cheryl should have been at church. When no one had seen her, her friends tried to call her and with no answer. One of her friends, Tanya, had gone by her residence and found her dog was inside. He was safe. And her vehicle was gone. So she called to file a missing persons report on December 3rd. And the last time she was seen was the 1st. So a few days later, when the detective who was taking down the information looked her up, he could see that her vehicle had been entered into the system the day prior. This prompted the police to get started to search for her. They went back to the camera and they took pictures and prints. They also did their best to retrace her steps on Saturday. She had visited a local library. She was seen at Leon Sink's geological area and then she had gone to Target. Because it's Target and it's her day off and she should go there. <laughs> One of the ways she enjoyed relaxing on her days off was to go outside and venture, often taking a book and finding a nice spot to sit and read. And this was confirmed by two witnesses who saw her carrying a hardback book around 1.30. Tuesday, the police found out from Cheryl's bank records that there had been some withdrawals, about $700 total, made after the last time she had been seen. When they were requesting the ATM footage, they were a bit thrown off by what they saw. It wasn't Cheryl Dunlap, it was a man, and he appeared to be wearing a makeshift mask made out of tape. The police would figure that it was white medical tape like I would wrap my injuries in, which made sense because Cheryl's a nurse and she probably had some in her car. When they were examining her car, the techs noticed that the tire had been sabotaged. It appeared as though her car had made it into the wooded area with the four intact and while parked, it had been punctured. This person then must have pulled up behind her on the side of Highway 319 offering assistance, and then probably took her from that point. And just like in John Bryant's case, it was likely that she was held hostage for her PIN number. On December 15, 2007, in the Apalachicola National Forest, two hunters stumbled upon the partial body of a woman. I say this because she was missing her hands and her head. Whoa. Apalachicola National Forest is about an hour or so from Tallahassee. The police wouldn't be able to identify it as Cheryl Dunlap for several days as they waited for a DNA match to some toiletry items they'd taken from her home. They used her toothbrush, actually. The medical examiner estimated that Cheryl's remains were in the woods from for about 7 to 15 days, placing her death between December 5th and December 8th. Nearly a month later, investigators found what they believed to be her head and hands in a fire pit less than 10 miles from the rest of her body. Whoa. Yeah. How strange. I know. Just wait, my love. New Year's Day 2008 was on a Tuesday. And being a holiday meant that 24-year-old Meredith Emerson had the day off. She decided to do one of her favorite things go for a hike. But she wasn't alone. She took with her Ella, her beautiful black lab mix. There better not be anything happening to her. You think I would tell this story if something happened to a dog? No. Yeah, it's a right answer. The night prior was nothing exciting, unlike those who celebrate New Year's. Meredith and her boyfriend, Steve Sagers, 
left their festivities early to beat the traffic, which is something you and I would totally do. <laughs> I assumed she had no hangover or anything like that. She left her home after 10 that morning, leaving her roommate, Julia Karenbauer, a note saying that she and Ella were going out on an adventure. She didn't say where. The duo ended up going to hike, and this is such an omen of a name, but she and Ella go to Blood Mountain, located in Vogel State Park near Blairsville, Georgia. So we've been into North Carolina, Florida, now we're in Georgia. Witnesses would later confirm that while on their hike, Meredith and Ella came across an older man with his dog. Some say it looked like they were together. Some say it looked like he was following her. Regardless, no one could have predicted what had happened next. As Meredith and Ella started descending down the trail, this older man was lying in wait with a knife. The man's goal was to ambush her, make her give up her bank card and pen, Meredith refused to give in to him and fought back twice. The man underestimated his target. Meredith Emerson was not just an experienced hiker. She was also training in two forms of martial arts. She had acquired so far blue belts in both Krav Maga and Aikido. So she was tough. Nice. She was able to disarm her assailant once. And he had at that time in his possession a... Um, Big O hunting knife, and then he also had a police baton. She would have won the second fight if it wasn't for her losing her footing. Once this happened, the older man wore her down, breaking her nose, giving her black eyes. Another hiker would come along sometime later to this section of the trail, and he suspected a fight or a struggle. Something had taken place from the disturbed ground with her water bottles scattered everywhere, the baton, a dog leash, some other items. Since he was one of the witnesses from earlier in the day, he had noticed that the leash on the ground was Meredith's for Ella. He turned in the items to the Forest Services and left his number in case this was a part of something much bigger and the authorities needed to reach him. New Year's Day comes and goes. Still no sign of Meredith. When she didn't return home, her roommate Julia called her boyfriend Steve to check in. He had not heard from her either, Julia knew she had gone hiking with Ella, but now she, Steve, and other friends had to figure out which trail. They all picked a direction and headed out. They had also reported her absence to the police, and she was labeled as an overdue hiker. I read that Steve was the one who spotted her Chevy Cavalier parked at the trailhead of Blood Mountain. Now Meredith's friends and the police had a starting point. Nothing useful was found in her vehicle. None of her personal belongings were inside. An all-out search went on, but the weather had began to worsen and it was now snowing. Since searching on foot was going to be difficult, if not impossible, the police then established a tip line and relied on the public for any help. This is where they learned from several witnesses about an older man last seen with Meredith Worried that this was now an abduction case, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was called in. Between the descriptions made by hikers on Blood Mount, plus descriptions made by other hikers in the cases of the Bryants and Cheryl Dunlap, it didn't take long for someone to recognize this man who is now wanted in three states. It was either late January 2nd or in the morning of January 3rd when a man named John Tabor called the tip line 
Based on the description, white male, 60s, white van, reddish color dog. John Tabor knew who the man was because he used to work for him. His name was Gary Michael Hilton. Gary Michael Hilton was a native of Georgia. He was born in Atlanta, November 26, 1946. His life growing up wasn't all sunshines and rainbows and puppies. It was mainly Gary and his mom for years there in the beginning. His dad wasn't around, well, because he was married to several other women. I'm sorry, you never said what happened to the dog. I'm getting to that, my love. I promise, she's fine. Better be. Is that why you've been glaring at me? Yeah. (laughs) The suspense is building. His mother, Chloe, did end up marrying a man when Gary was about eight. His stepfather, Nilo DeBag, was from Argentina, and he worked with racehorses. With this type of work, the family was constantly relocating. Gary had no stability. He didn't do well in school. He had no friends. There's no family nearby. I'm sure to hear that it's no surprise that there was abuse in the home as well. I never really saw where Nilo beat on Gary, but when Gary was 13, he did shoot his stepfather in an attempt to protect his mother. It was no shocker either that Gary and Nilo didn't like each other, especially after the marriage started. And Gary was kind of a, I I think he's kind of like Oedipus-like. He was like obsessed with his mom because it was just him and his mother for so long. It was often wondered if Gary had been sexually abused by his own mother and maybe that played into his obsession with her. His stepfather, Nilo, survived and decided Gary needed help, so they shipped him off to a mental hospital for a little bit. At this time, which was like 1958-ish, the family was living outside of Miami, Florida. While Gary was there, his mother and Nilo would separate and get back together several times over the course of that marriage. Once Gary was released, he was sent to live with his mother's family or just some other family. I'd heard both. He attended high school in Miami, and he was super smart, but he would never graduate. Instead, he ended up enlisting in the Army in 1964. He would begin training as a paratrooper and received basic airborne training, all while getting his GED. So everything's looking like it's going well for him. Gary would end up being honorably discharged, though, after some psychiatric evaluations. They were thinking he was schizophrenic, bipolar, all the typical crazy things. Over the next 10 years or so, he would be married three or four times, all ending in divorce, and then he would work, you know, odd and in jobs. He would also be arrested on charges of unlicensed gun possession, DUIs, drug possession, and then solicitation. And it's not like solicitation, like hooker stuff. He had this, uh, Gary had this get rich money scheme that he would pull. He would pretend that he was a telemarketer asking, asking for donations for different charity. And then he'd go pick up the money, whether it be cash or check from these donors, and then he would pocket it. That's his solicitation charge. A couple of his ex-wives would also allege that Gary molested neighborhood kids So all that brings us to 1997, where he had a job working for a siding and insulation company owned by John Tabor, the man who called the tip line. Gary worked here about 10 years before he was let go because he threatened John for $10,000. 
but why he would threaten him, I don't know. John Tabor turned a blind eye to some of the stuff that Gary would steal and even gave Gary a place to stay on occasion because they'd become friends over the last 10 years. So from 97, 10 years, puts us at 2007, when all this trouble would start. For whatever reason, Gary Hilton acting erratically and threatening his boss, who's also his only friend, led to him and his dog, Dandy, to load up in his white Astrovan and begin his new line of work, attacking and robbing these hikers and then killing them to make sure there are no witnesses. Gary had something in common with all his victims, and that was the fact that he loved to be outdoors. He traveled around in his van with Dandy. Living this way, being outside was freeing for Gary Hilton. With his ever-present ADHD and possible schizophrenia and instability in his personal life, the outdoors was his escape. His victims were like so many we've spoken about here. They were all victims of opportunity. And now I'm going to go back to the Bryants and move forward from there and then finish with Meredith because it's her encounter that will stop him, finally. After losing his job, Gary moved north from Atlanta to North Carolina. Being a fan of the outdoors, he just happened to pick Pigza National Forest to stay. John and Irene Bryant were out for the hike, and at some point they crossed paths with Gary. So he was just sleeping out of his van? Yes. Yeah. More than likely at the beginning of their hike, since Irene was found so close to the trailhead in that parking area, Gary must have taken John hostage, threatening him, using Irene's death as an omen. What John didn't know is that it wouldn't have mattered him playing along or not. Gary had every intention of killing him, money taken or not. Gary was not about to leave behind any witnesses, not there in North Carolina, not in Florida, not in Georgia. Cheryl Dunlap unknowingly caught Gary Hilton's attention when she visited Leo Sinks, the geological area. Gary had been in the Tallahassee area weeks prior to Cheryl's abduction and death. We know this because on November 17th, about a month after the Bryants disappeared, Gary was given a warning that he was not supposed to stay longer than 14 days in the camping area that was located in uh, Chapalacola, uh, Chapa, <laughs> located in Apalachicola National Forest. Gary left that area sometime after December 15, 2007, when Cheryl's remains were found. There will be several witnesses at his trial that testified seeing him or coming into contact with him during the time of Cheryl's disappearance. One, for instance, jump-started his van. From there, he and his dog ventured to Georgia just in time for New Year's. Here's the thing about Gary Hilton in Georgia. He had driven through there prior when he had traveled from North Carolina. On this trip, he had stopped to camp on a private area in Cherokee County. He was seen and reported a deputy from the county came out to speak with Gary and rain him Nothing local there at the state level came up. So nothing on Georgia's system. Had that deputy ran him nationally, a.k.a. on the federal level, Gary Hilton would have been arrested on an outstanding warrant from 2005. According to the article from the Gainesville Times, 
The warrant was due to his failure to move his abandoned Chevy Astro van, which he had left parked on the base of Trey Mountain, which is in White County, Georgia. The White County Sheriff's Office had gotten multiple complaints in December 2005. Since Gary didn't technically have an address, they tracked him down through his employer at the time, which was John Tabor. Sergeant Phil Dallenberg from White County told Gary to move the van or an arrest warrant would be issued for abandoning personal property. After almost a year of waiting to have it towed, a forced uh, service ranger wrote Gary a ticket, and when Gary didn't answer this citation, there was a bench warrant for his failure to appear, which was supposed to be February 2007. It was there for a year? Almost a year, yeah. The article also went on to say that since the original offense was a misdemeanor on the federal level, it wasn't entered into the NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Center. Seems likely that the Georgia deputy only ran him in their state database, which would be the Georgia Crime Information Center, meaning that when he was ran in Florida, it was only their state database as well, which we can just assume, or else they would have gotten him then and then Meredith would have still been alive the second time aka his return to Georgia January 1st 2008 was when he came across Meredith and Ella he used his love of the outdoors and dogs to most likely strike up a conversation after he was finally able to subdue her he led Meredith down to his van with his makeshift leash he had her go to her car and get her personal belongings, like her purse, which is why her boyfriend, the authorities, didn't find anything. Gary tied her in the back of his van with chains, and he put Ella in Meredith's Cavalier. As he started to drive off, Meredith begged and begged to go back for Ella. She was afraid she would freeze to death in the car. Maybe it was because he was a dog person, or maybe he was afraid Meredith would start to fight back if she knew that her co-pilot, her partner in crime, would die. C. Derby. Mm -hmm. A.K.A. C. Derby. Regardless of the reason, Gary does go back for Ella. Gary Hilton would have Meredith kept as a prisoner almost four days, three of which she bought herself by giving Gary the wrong pin number going to the wrong banks, even though she kept telling him they were correct. Sadly, it would take her bank days to even recognize the pattern of the incorrect pin attempts. Gary was reaching his breaking point, plus he knew that every officer in the state was looking for Meredith, Ella, and him. He had purposely gone to banks far away from the abduction site to hide suspicions, but it was too late. He had majorly fucked up. He knew that probably as soon as she started to fight him, he knew he messed up. He knew it too because there were too many witnesses that saw them together on the trail. The day he decided to kill Meredith, he lied to her and told her she was going to go home. He had her tied up, casually went for some coffee, and then came back and proceeded to bludgeon her to death with the handle of his car's jack. She died of blunt force trauma to the head, just like Irene Bryant. Then he decapitated her, just like Cheryl Dunlap. Gary couldn't bring himself to kill Ella, so he let her go. So she's fine. How messed up. Ella would end up being found in a Kroger parking lot, which if you're not from around here, Kroger is a grocery store. 
And that was in Cumming, which is north of Atlanta, Georgia, about 50 miles south of Vogel State Park, where they were taken from. You want to know how they knew it was Ella? Because Meredith was a good parent. Yeah, microchipped. She was microchipped. On January 4th, a witness... I'd seen in different sources that it was the, the store clerk at the gas station. Others were just passerbyers. But regardless, I'm going to go with the store clerk. So on January 4th, the store clerk at a Chevron gas station called the county police and bluntly said that the guy you're looking for is out here cleaning his van. Gary had used a payphone that was close by. And then he had thrown away three bloody fleece tops and a portion of the back seat seat belt that had blood on it in a dumpster behind this gas station. Other items in the dumpster were a U.S. Forestry citation for unauthorized camping, a knife, boots, chains, and a padlock, among other things. When deputies arrived on scene, Gary was trying to vacuum and bleach his van. The blood and the DNA evidence would later be confirmed to belong to Meredith Emerson. And fun fact, they found multiple items in the van, mostly for camping, but one thing stuck out. It was a book that he had bought at a Tallahassee bookstore. And Gary didn't resist any arrest. Like I said, he knew it was coming. When they had taken Gary in, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation took the lead. In the interrogation, Gary admitted to killing Meredith. He knew the one thing everyone really wanted, and that was her body. In exchange for a full confession, Gary did not want the death penalty. He would lead authorities to her body. He kept his word, and so did the GBI. Gary would end up taking them nearly 40 miles south of where he abducted Meredith at Blood Mountain, there was a road near Dawsonville in the Dawson Forest, which is a nature preserve. He had buried her body in one spot, then taken her head and buried it in another spot close by. All the authorities could think was, Dear Lord, they weren't anywhere near the right area looking for Meredith. Gary Hilton, at the end of January 2008, would end up receiving a sentence of life in prison, get this, with the possibility of parole in 30 years, but only in the state of Georgia. Once the word had spread like wildfire of his arrest and the state in which Meredith Emerson's body was found, Florida knew that he was their guy for the murder of Cheryl Dunlap, and Florida wasn't going to make any deals. A month or so later, Florida prosecutors charged Gary Hilton with Cheryl Dunlap's murder. On February 28, 2008, he was indicted by grand jury for first-degree murder, kidnapping, grand theft of a motor vehicle, and grand theft of currency. He would go to trial February 21, 2011, so three years later, be found guilty and given the death penalty... But he wasn't done just yet. Two years later, on February 25th, 2013, in Asheville, North Carolina, Gary Hilton was sentenced to four life sentences in the U.S. District Court. Back in June 2011, he had a federal grand jury return with a five-count indictment for the murders of John and Irene Bryant on National Forest lands. 
Haywood pleaded guilty in 2012 to the murders and the robbery and kidnapping and firearm charges. His federal life sentences are to be served consecutively with the sentences he was convicted of in Georgia and Florida. Federal sentences are served without the possibility of parole. Gary Michael Hilton is now 76, sitting on death row in Union Correctional Institute in Rayford, Florida. As of today, he is admitted to the murders of the four victims in this story, John and Irene Bryant, Cheryl Dunlap, and Meredith Hemerson. And there are five or six others that are potentially connected to him. And those are the ones I'm going to talk about now. Oof. You ready? Yeah. Okay. On September, and they're going to go chronologically, by the way. So, on September 7th, 1997, hunters in Pigza National Forest, there in North Carolina, found human bones, clothing, and other items scattered. So, this is 10 years prior to the Bryants in Pigza National Forest. This is when he first started working for John Tabor. Okay? Okay. The bones were located in a shallow grave with cutting marks on some of the bones. That plus the holes in the clothing, investigators believe that the victim was stabbed. The dental records confirmed that the bones were Judy Smith, a 50-year-old woman who was last seen by her husband in Philadelphia on April 10th, so months prior. Investigators contacted the police in Philadelphia who would have had no reason to search for her body over 600 miles away. It is unknown how or why she ended up in the Asheville area. She has been connected to Gary Hilton because of the location of her remains, being that Pigza was where the Bryants met their demise. Next, same year, a month after Judy Smith's remains were found, a 11-year-old boy named Levi Frady went missing in Georgia. He was last seen on October 22, 1997, riding his bike home from a friend's house. His bike was found less than a mile from his own home. The next day on the 23rd, his body was found in Dawson Forest in Dawson County. There are two men they called as potential witnesses that the GBI needed help from the public to find. The first man was Scruffy bearded white male in his late 50s wearing a blue baseball cap with a slouched back when he walked the second man was white clean shaven six foot about 50 or so he was seen driving a blue toyota with a white camper shell gary hilton had left meredith emerson's remains in the dawson county nature preserve so the same spot this little boy's body was found gary stood about 5'10" also living in Atlanta during this time, and it was rifle season for deer hunters. When Gary was younger, he was put in a boy's summer camp where he earned marksmanships in rifle shooting. April 12, 1998, in South Carolina, 20-year-old Jason Andrew Knapp was reported missing by his mother after his roommates grew concerned that he never came home from the movies. His 1990 Chevy Beretta was discovered abandoned on April 21st at Table Rock National Park, 30 miles from Clemson University in Pickens, South Carolina. There was a $20 withdrawal from his account on the 12th, but nothing after. His personal belongings were still in his apartment. 
He has never been found and was declared deceased in 2018. Gary Hilton was a potential suspect in his case, but he's denied any connection. The abandoned vehicle at a state park could just be a coincidence. April 15th, 2004, 38-year-old Patrice, I'm going to think it's Andres or Indres, disappeared from her hair salon off Highway 369 in Cumming, Georgia. The GBI said her lunch was uneaten, her car was there, but money was missing from the register. She had missed an 11.30 a.m. appointment. Her skeletal remains would be found over a year later on December 6, 2005. She was located by Kelly Bridge Road, which runs along next to the Dawson County Nature Preserve. Again, the same place where 11-year-old Levi Frady was found and then in a couple years will be Meredith's remains. Gary Hilton supposedly was given a traffic violation around that time in 2004 in the general area of her salon. In 2020, her case was featured on the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries, and there were three serial killers who admitted to killing her, but all have since recanted. Rasana Miliani, I hope I'm saying her name right, went missing from Cherokee, North Carolina, December 7th, 2005. She was 29 at the time. She'd come up from Miami for a vacation and was staying at the Ramada Inn. She had been overheard talking about taking a hike on the Appalachian Trail, even calling her father to tell him her plans. In 2009, a private investigator started to dig into her disappearance. He spoke to a store clerk in Bryson City, which is 20 minutes from Cherokee. And that clerk had sold Rasana a backpack, and there was a 60-ish year old white male with her at the time. The clerk always thought Rasana seemed nervous or scared. Either it was this clerk that helped make a sketch or had seen Gary after he was arrested on TV and noted the similarities to the man that she had seen years prior with Rosanna. Michael Scott Lewis was 27 years old when he was reported missing on November 21st, 2007. He was from South Daytona, Florida, and his Firebird, which was his prized possession, was found in the parking lot of his apartment complex with the key still in the ignition, but it was nowhere near where it should have been parked. Inside were a few personal items. A fisherman was out on the Tomoka River inside Tomoka State Park on December 6th when he came across black trash bags on the banks. In the bags was a torso and legs. The remains were sent off for testing and came back as Michael Scott Lewis. His head was never found. It took over two weeks for him to be found, though the coroner estimated he'd been dead about a week after he went missing. Obviously, being in Florida around the same time as Cheryl Dunlap's murder and the fact that there was a decapitation, Gary Hilton was named a suspect. But in 2018, Nelsie Tetley from Daytona Beach, was arrested and charged with the murder and dismemberment of her boyfriend, Jeffrey Albertson. His remains were discovered July 2017. He'd been shot in the chest and his arms and legs were cut off, found months later. One of her ex-boyfriends was Michael Scott Lewis. Daytona Beach and Tomoka State Park about 20 minutes away from each other, 
those were the the most likely could have been him ones. And then there's a couple extra that I'm going to mention that were just part of a timeline. Well, those Michael Scott and the other guy sounded like the girlfriend. Yeah, so the Jeffrey Albertsman and Michael Scott Lewis, they suspect the girl or ex-girlfriend killed them. So not Gary, but the fact that he was in the same area at the time, they just suspected with him. All those that you mentioned, though, are those all unsolved, I guess, still? Yes, they are. And then here's some few extras. December 6, 2007, there were remains from an unidentified woman in LaGrange, Georgia, and five trash bags were hands, feet, and her head. Doubtful it was Hilton because he was with Cheryl Dunlap during this time, and he had been seen by witnesses in the Apalachicola National Forest in Florida. So they know it wasn't him that did this, but it was just kind of eerie that it was so close and very similar. And then another potential victim, but has been proven otherwise, was Kaylee Bywater, a 29-year-old graduate student from Athens, Georgia. She was last seen with her dog, Ollie, on December 29, 2007. Witnesses said she'd been acting odd and looked lost. It was known that she was bipolar. Her dog was found running loose. At her residence, her family found all of her belongings, keys, phone, wallet, etc. The back door was wide open. Gary Hilton was suspected of abducting her, but after her body was found in a lake in Athens, the coroner concluded she had drowned and there were no signs of foul play. Sadly, her disappearance didn't receive the media attention that could have helped save her life because she was overshadowed by Meredith Emerson's case. Mm. Well, the ones in 97, I mean, they're in the same areas where he mm-hmm. left the bodies, so it wouldn't surprise me that he would go it's back to those areas. It's just kind of eerily similar, yeah. Huh. Gary Michael Hilton will never get the opportunity to hurt another person. He will be rotting in a cell until the state of Florida or time takes his life. After he was finally caught and interviewed, naturally, investigators asked him why he did it, why he took those girls. He never really talked about how he chose his victims, just wrong place, wrong time. Though in Meredith's case, he said he targeted her because she was a woman. As far as why... He would be getting low and strapped for cash and pretty much did what he felt was necessary to rob someone and then rid of the evidence tying him to them. That's pretty much what I thought. He was just trying to get money to Mm -hmm. get by. But still, why does he cut their heads off and take them like 80 miles away? Psychologists have studied him and his case, and they call him a hedonistic killer which means he killed for pleasure, that there was something about overpowering a helpless victim. He's also labeled a gain killer, meaning he killed for comfort or security. These types of killers often have prior involvement in theft and fraud crimes. So they're right on the money for that. Julia Karenbauer and Brent Saylor, which is just another friend of Meredith's, and Julia was her roommate at the time of her disappearance, created the Right to Hike group in Meredith's honor, and they raised awareness on issues like hiking safety. For 10 years after their friend's death, they hosted Ella's Run, 
Riley named after her beloved dog. I got so teary-eyed when I was writing this. I might cry again. It's It was a great way for people to come out and support an amazing girl and to always remember Meredith. And yes, it was a dog-friendly event. They held their last and final run in 2017. The Ride to Hike was able to donate nine emergency phones throughout outdoor spaces in the community, and they contributed money towards several animal organizations as well as a scholarship in Meredith's name. And that, and that is the case of Gary Michael Hilton, and I am so sorry for the families of John and Irene Bryant, Cheryl Dunlap, and Meredith Emerson, and then maybe those others that have never been solved. You just got to be very careful when you go out hiking. I know. I mean, even Meredith, she had two blue belts. She was, like I said, if she had not slipped, yeah, she would have won. And he even said that in his interviews that, she almost got him. Because he had a knife and a baton. Mm-hmm. And she was probably trying to hold on to Ella and not let her, like, run off at the same time. Well, the thing about Ella that, because she was, I mean, that was her life. That was her baby. She not only had her microchipped and everything, but she was training her to be a physical therapy dog. So I bet her recall was really good. She probably, I mean, obviously she was concerned about her dog when it came to putting her in that car. She didn't want her to freeze. But I think if she had run off, I think she would have been okay with it. Probably. But still, like. You just don't know. Hiking groups. Right. I don't ever wear my earbuds or anything, but I also don't get reception to listen to, like, Pandora. Oh, well, good. Or Spotify. So it's just, just. Derby and I out there. I always just remember that one time when we lived at the old house that you were walking Derby and I was on a run and I caught up to you and snuck up behind you so easily because you had your earbuds in Mm -hmm. and Derby didn't like bark or anything. Well, because she knew you. Well, still, it's just so easy to sneak up on someone It's true. That's very true. Yeah, she. if you had been a stranger, that'd be another story. But yeah, you're right. I don't I don't listen to my music or anything when I'm out hiking. And I always tell you when we go and where we go. Yeah, drop a pin. Yeah, that's the story of the National Forest Killer. Huh. Rightly named, unfortunately. I hope that was worth the week wait. It seemed like a lot when I was going through it because there's a lot out there about that man. You saw my, or heard, heard my sources. And Jesse's got ours next week. You can follow us at Caught Red Podcast, P-A-W-D, on Instagram and on Facebook. Like, subscribe, leave a review anywhere you listen to our podcast. Give us a recommendation. Yes. We've got a few on the list that we got to get to still, but yeah, if you've got one in your hometown or something that's just real crazy that you want us to cover. We love crazy. Yeah, we're both a little crazy. But until next time, stay local. Shop local. Murder local. <laughs>